Hello, this is uh, Real Sankara Hours, Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. This is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. Um, still got to get that follower count up. But yeah. I'm easing my way back into into the Twitter sphere. There's There's been some good stuff as of recent like uh like the clip i just showed you about nina turner being explained as as to how she did not understand martin luther king's letter oh, from a jail oh, oh my god oh fuck that was terrible wait who was it it was hillary rosen right she was responding to yeah so, some yeah. some random dipshit cnn dnc surrogate but it was that was that was next level because not only did she try to explain it to her, she also got the quote wrong, and so she was yeah, literally she falsifying the quote while explaining that Nina Turner had no right to invoke Martin Luther King, which uh, that's gonna that's a uh, that's a bellwether for what the rest of this primary season has to offer. Bullshit like and- that. Yeah, um, and I'm trying to find. She had a tweet where she uh, explained. You know what? Fuck it. I'm not gonna find her tweet. It, I mean that 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 clip where she was just. I mean, it was just uh, just a real. Um, you know, one of many examples of just paternalistic white liberalism, and also like the amount of ignorance that comes with it. Because like, you know, there are instances in which you know, white liberals will condescend and to black people like we're stupid, like, oh my God, you don't you don't really know what Dr. King said. Actually this is what he said and blah 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 blah. And this is a case for like not only is she being paternalistic, but she actually w- was was straight up wrong. Because she was trying to say like her point was, um, oh Dr. King, what he was saying was actually um he was criticizing the silence of white moderates and joe biden is not silent and blah 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 when that's not what he uh, fucking said <laughs> he did not uh, say that like he was saying he was basically and nina turner pointed us out that like the white the white moderate that king was criticizing is that they the white moderates are more interested in preserving the status quo than achieving true justice and liberation for black people so they'll make like mild concessions but they won't go so far as to threaten the status quo and that's yeah. joe biden to a t and that's also hillary rosen to a t um so i mean yeah it, i mean that's just like white liberal paternalism right there yeah um, yeah and that's that's who's empowered so let's uh let's wind back uh this is recording this thursday night after uh the total war demonstration that was Super Tuesday. Yeah, and so far, um, okay. Who is uh, let's let's count the um, presidential uh, casualties. So, uh, Michael Bloomberg dropped yeah. out. Tom Steyer dropped out. Um, Amy Klobuchar annihilated, dropped out. Pete Buttigieg gone, boom, <laughs> dropped out. Um, and just earlier today, Elizabeth Warren dropped out. Um, she dropped out after Super Tuesday, so she was still, you know, 
running as a candidate on Super Tuesday, but um, uh, Bloomberg ate shit on Super Tuesday, and he 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 basically dropped out just out of sheer shame. So that was <laughs> that was fun to watch. Yeah, that was just fun. I I got a kick out of seeing yeah. Bloomberg dropped out because he was so embarrassed because he lost I, so badly. I was genuinely concerned because like. The moment I start, he started throwing ads everywhere and I had to see him on TV, all I could think about was like, I really hope, I cannot wait for the day I never have to see this man's face again. And I was oh, seriously yeah. concerned that I would have to see it like for the next three months, much less four years. And uh, he, was a, he was aggressive with uh, the ads. I mean, I saw yeah. ads, you know, here in California on the TV, like he was really aggressive with the ads and... 500 mil baby it went nowhere he didn't win he didn't win at all i yeah i don't think that was his point i think he was just i guess he was just willing to gum up the machinery basically he was there to take the heat off biden um yeah Mm -hmm. yeah as yeah i mean it's an interesting ploy and it let's be very clear like it was barack obama himself capital h himself who yeah. organizes? He's the only thing that can make all that happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. And yep, you know they were like, "All right, well, you know, I always knew that they that the Democratic Party wouldn't get, you know, blindsided the way the Republican Party did because like the Democratic Party is actually very well organized and effective in stopping the left. So yep. they're not just a bunch of incompetent hacks." They actually know a lot of what they're doing when it comes to suppressing the left. And so I knew they would coalesce around someone eventually. But yeah. they like at the end of the day, you still have Joe Biden, actually existing Joe Biden, not the Joe Biden in your imagination, but the one here today in 2020 whose brain is leaking out of his skull. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the uh, Joe Biden is um, a walking corpse at this point, and I mean, didn't he? Didn't he confuse his wife and his sister? Yes, or his wife. Yeah. Yes, he did. And, and he also forgot he 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 forgot he was running for president. Yeah. He confused for yeah. for running for senator or something like that. So this Very is a guy bad decision who, to make: confuse your wife with your sister. Oh, yeah on on multiple levels. I'll I'll let you guys imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> but in that respect, actually, uh, I mean, Biden confusing his wife for his sister. I mean, um, uh, you know, the, that makes him no different than Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Think I think it. I think Trump is like I think he's like five. Trump is like 10 percent more there and like lives for. the. And I think he really comes alive on TV. So oh, he yes. would be able yeah. to perform on TV way mm. better than Biden. And, you know, yeah, it'll be like uh, the battle of the sundowners, but Trump would still be able to get the points in and he would just be really confused. Um, Yeah. And it seems like um, Glenn Greenwald, I I wanted to kind of mention this article because he wrote a, I thought Glenn Greenwald wrote a good piece in the intercept uh, on March 2nd, 2020. Um, the title of it is Democrats Craving a Brokered Convention, Including Elizabeth Warren, Should Learn the Lessons of 1968. Oh, yeah. Probably, yeah, this is before Elizabeth Warren, um, this is before Liz Warren uh, dropped out. But I think that the, um, Greenwald's essential thesis is, 
Correct, because, um, and so he, he points out, like, so there are some maps, actually, of the 1964 election versus the 68 election. And um, in 64, uh, Lyndon Johnson just basically crushed Barry Goldwater, Barry Goldwater throughout the country. So Goldwater only won Arizona, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina in 1964. Whereas Johnson won every other state, um, including <laughs> his home, st- including his home state of Texas, which Elizabeth Warren did not win her home state of Massachusetts. She lost that. Um, yeah. And then in '68, this is um, when Nixon was running against Hubert Humphrey and um, American Independent. Um, uh, it was Henry Wallace. Wait, was it Wallace? Oh, George Wallace. I'm sorry. That's George. George yeah. Different no, Wallace. Much yeah, different. Much <laughs> different. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Yeah. It's George Wallace. Because on the map it said Wallace. I was like, Wallace, Wallace. The first oh, one that came. Oh, no. Not. No. Yeah. Uh, I can like only think of the good Wallace. <laughs> the good one. <laughs> so, this, this, yeah. So, third party segregationist George Wallace. Henry Wallace was a lot better. Way better mm-hmm. than George Wallace. Um, so yeah, so Nixon won the '68 election, and basically that was essentially, in large part, a referendum, so to speak, on the Vietnam War because um, Hubert Humphrey was a pro Vietnam pro Vietnam War establishment liberal who was um, Lyndon Johnson's uh, vice president, and then there was George McGovern who was the anti-war candidate and also a lot more progressive on that um, social. Wait, hold up. Um, wait. No, in 68, it was mostly, so actually the parallels to 68 and possibility of, and now are little scary in that um, there was Eugene McCarthy and he was like the hippie, he was like the hippie candidate. There's this whole thing called clean for Gene, where like all the Mm. hippies would cut off their hair and basically it is like kind of the equivalent of like the burnout lefties, like you know, rallying to support Bernie. They um, they were doing that for Eugene McCarthy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and there was also, of course, RFK, who was yeah. honestly most likely killed by the CIA. But we won't get into that. He was the prohibitive that, favorite. But... Yeah. We'll um, yeah, we can probably get into the Kennedy stuff in another episode. That'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, um, especially the way, especially what it did for the Palestinian cause. But basically, after RFK was assassinated, it was like there's Eugene McCarthy, who was the left candidate, who was against the war, and they did not the Democratic establishment really did not want to go for him, so they picked Humphrey who had not run a campaign. He had not won a single state, but they picked him at the 60, the infamous 68 convention where they rioted the Mm -hmm. fuck out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, I hear a lot of talk about people going to Milwaukee and um, it's, they may not, they they don't want it to be a brokered convention, but I, if there's any semblance of shenanigans, it's going to get real bad. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it was. You're right. It, uh, I just want to correct myself. You're right. It was Eugene McCarthy. That's that, and and particularly in Greenwald's yeah. article, he's compared. Yeah. So it's so in this scenario, it was not the 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 left kind of anti-war candidate 
was not George, George McGovern, even though George McGovern also was an anti-war politician. Yeah. In this case, it was Senator Eugene McCarthy. He was the anti-war candidate of the left, basically. So, yeah, yeah. anyway, continue. I just wanted to make that correction. Yeah, yeah. McGovern is 72. And That's he, right. Yeah. yeah. He got wiped out. And that is like the thing that if you ask any like establishment Democrat, like why they won't um, why they don't believe like any progressive candidate can win. They always put point to McGovern. But it's a really yes. dumb argument. Yes. The yeah. other thing I wanted to say for people also looking for historical parallels is that in 64. I mean, yeah, Lyndon Johnson was honestly kind of a piece of shit especially the way he ramped up the mm. war in Vietnam. But oh, one yeah. thing he did do in 64 was, and I'm pretty sure this is in 64, before the election, I'm sure he was smart enough to do it before the election, was reveal the Great Society and Medicare mm -hmm. and all these social, dem social welfare programs that would prove to be very popular. And that, and when you institute you know, social welfare, social democratic programs that proved to be popular, that helps the Democratic Party. So maybe you should go for the candidate trying to introduce those things if you care about things like the Democratic Party's future. Yeah, and uh, so um, Glenn goes through essentially um, the, the, basically the, um, uh, the sort of firestorm at the 68 election and also the very, very harsh police mm. crackdown oh, in Chicago. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And um, basically McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy was essentially, he represented essentially like the party. I, I would say really the base of the party at the time. I mean, particularly when you're thinking of 68, yeah. th this was already, the public was turning against the Vietnam war. Um, there, there's a lot of, you know, this is this is the same year that um, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, this is also the year that uh, JFK, uh, sorry, RFK was assassinated. His brother, Bob, Bobby Kennedy, was assassinated that year. So there is a lot of, basically, I guess you could say, like, social upheaval going on in the United States at the time. Um, and, you know, there was still a lot of um, black militancy when it came to um, advancing uh the black freedom struggle because even though the civil rights act was passed in 64 and the voting rights act was passed in 65 there are still a lot of uh, problems particularly when it came to um urban poverty and police yeah. violence in black neighborhoods so there were basically riots and rebellions in black neighborhoods like detroit los angeles yeah. harlem around that time yeah. and and so yeah like so there was real popular social upheaval going on in 68 and i think eugene mccarthy that's that's what catapulted eugene mccarthy to um that position within the democratic party at the time yeah. in 68 yeah you were yeah well yeah he i mean it was supposed to be rfk he was like seen as the like saving figure for the party and then he got yeah. knocked out but it's also important to remember in 68 that Nixon was running like an explicitly white supremacist campaign. He was very much yep. saying, I will restore law and order over mm -hmm. these, you know, recalcitrant, uh, unruly black populations. Like yep. that is he was that was a very explicit part of his campaign. So honestly, it's one of those things where I'm like, 
I really kind of feel like there's nothing Trump's done that's worse than Nixon. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. in the broad yeah. historical sense. Yeah, I mean, Nixon was like, I mean, Nixon, the, the things he said privately in that would, which were recorded on tape, were pretty much the same thing, same shit that Trump, Trump says. Um, so basically, Glenn Greenwald's point in comparing the 68 convention um, with the 2020 is essentially Bernie Sanders is Eugene McCarthy in this scenario, whereas yeah. Hubert Humphrey is Joe Biden. And yeah. so the party, the party bosses went with Hubert Humphrey that led to a broker convention and that did not lead to a democratic victory. It led to Richard Nixon becoming president. So yeah. I, I, the, the essential takeaway lesson from the 68 convention that can be applied now is, you know, in order to, if the democratic party cares about, you know, its own, um, party stability and party unity. I mean, they love to say we need to, you know, unite yep. the Democrats, party unity, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, if you really care about that, then you you should be listening to the real base there. of the party and not, and not the witches of the party elites. So um, I wanted to mention that because I think the, the, the left, from what I've been seeing among um, mm-hmm. Sanders supporters and the sort of like activists, social democratic left to socialist, there's been a lot of left progressive energy pushing for Bernie Sanders. Um, and one thing I've been noticing is I think some people are wondering, you know, let's say if Bernie Sanders does lose, because it seems like, you know, he, he still has a momentum. There's still a chance yeah. he could. Yeah. Win. Yeah. It's there's, not over at all. Right. Not it's and, not even close. I mean, after all yeah. that, you know, basically, I don't want to say Blitzkrieg because. Those kind of comparisons are bad form now, but yeah, it was that that whole that was some very House of Cards shit, right? Like that it all happens right at once, and it's very like politics genius type shit. But you know, once that once basically that show of force is over and everyone's like get you know calms down and gets their heads back, it's like you know I I remember in 2016 thinking like. You know, or whenever I w- realized that Bernie was absolutely running again, that if they could get it down to him versus Biden, he would win purely because they couldn't like weaponize identity against him. And right. I still believe that. But the problem is that they and I think honestly, so because they moved a lot of primaries around like very heavily and moved everything up into March so that like the whole process would be over very quickly. I was kind of confused when they did that, but I do think on some level and because there are, even though like there are a lot, every all these people in DC think they're politics geniuses, even though they're not. So it right. totally makes yeah. sense that they would basically kind of stack things in a way that would be in Joe Biden's favor. Cause they knew that he would basically be the front runner. And so it's very, very fortuitous that, Basically, there wasn't a debate after South Carolina. There's, you know, that there's not a debate until after the next primaries on Tuesday. So Biden basically gets like this whole week where people don't have to realize how I mean, it's how incapable he is of like effectively being president. And 
it's true the system doesn't really need like a functional executive at the top they can just have an animated corpse but people need to understand that like that's what will happen and they're like nothing's gonna happen nobody's doing anything it'll just be basically clinton style let wall street go crazy let um let silicon valley do whatever they want uh you know do some try do some half-hearted attempts at healthcare reform that won't go anywhere and then you get tom cotton in 2024 and as amber said then we won't have any more elections I, like and this is what i've been thinking because um you know the 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 left so to speak to to what to whatever extent the left exists within within the United States, because you know the the United States doesn't really have um, a left like other parts of the world, right? So to, yeah. to to whatever extent the left has existed in the U.S., it's always been pretty marginal. But the Bernie Sanders campaign and the movement behind him has is is basically this rare opportunity rare opportunity to advance um, a left agenda and. So we've already so the Bernie campaign has already built up this mass movement of volunteers, canvassers, phone bankers, um, uh, yeah. uh, party officials, organizers. So there's already essentially a large sort of group of, of foot soldiers and organizers in the campaign. So, you know, my, what I've been thinking is, let's say if Bernie Sanders loses the nomination or what could happen is let's say he gets close to winning the nomination or has like the number of delegates for it to qualify to win the nomination, there's going to be a broker convention. And then the party bosses, the the democratic party elite are basically just going to, um, you know, tip the scale in whatever way through whatever, um, kind of fudging of the rules or whatever, um, to get Joe Biden. Hence why I mentioned the, um, Greenwald piece. In that scenario, if there's a broken convention and it leads to Biden winning the nomination, the question is the, that I'm thinking of is where do where does that Bernie movement go? That populist base that has been organized basically since his campaign started running um, last election. And so what I've been thinking, this is what's been on my mind, and I'm wondering what you think, Peter, and what others think, is I think in, in the case that Bernie Sanders loses – um, that energy that he's cultivated for the past couple of years needs to go into building either a real alternative progressive political party and or uh, real progressive political institutions to particularly fight at the local and state level, to fight and, and get progressive candidates on the local and state level, um, nominating uh, judges because it's not just a national election, the presidential election that matters. There's still a ton of other races, you know, uh, st- uh, state offices like state senators, state legislature, state legislative offices, um, uh, mayorships, governorships, um, congressional races. There, there is a piece um, not too long ago, but I, I read somewhere that uh, during Obama's uh, presidency, the Democrats lost. Uh, I think somewhere over a thousand seats, like yeah. hundreds of seats. Yeah, yeah, they got crushed and, on state legislatures. Right. Yeah, and so state legislatures, governorships, um, the Democrats have been crushed. So, you know, I I don't like I would hate to see, um, 
you know, in the case that Bernie Sanders loses nomination, that all that energy and all that popular energy just dies and, and goes away. Yeah. It has yeah. to go somewhere. Yeah, it's and, it's, and I, yeah, it's not going that, away. Um, as much yeah, as your, I can tell, as much as I can tell, it's mm-hmm. not going away. Like this isn't like people are people are much more committed to like building a long term project, and I think people. I you know I don't think people are entirely up front i i don't know about you know sort of the extremely hard work of building a real mass workers party i mean i i'm convinced that's the only way you enact real political change but Mm -hmm. i you know the dsa um does not has that's that's not a thing they've really come down on and I'm sure it's hotly debated. I I don't know. I'm not like keyed in far enough on the inside to know how much how like to what degree that's being debated. But I definitely think that like people will be turn you know, if the Democrats fuck this up, then people will I think a lot of these people will not have anything to do with the Democratic Party for a generation. Yeah, and I know. Mm-hmm. I certainly won't. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is, like, I think, you know, I normally don't like to give uh, these kinds of like Machiavellian movement political kind of advice, so to speak. But I do feel like the reason why I'm saying this is because, I, you know, I was just thinking about like, you know, sort of post Super Tuesday and the results and all that, like. I think we're kind of as a country and honestly as a as a fucking planet really uh at a crossroads in terms of what future we're going to have. Yeah. Um in a real fundamental way, more than just like okay, I'm going to vote for this candidate because of this policy, but but like we there there has to be you know something to really push for a new vision for what humanity's yeah. going to look like and how especially how we're going to survive the planet with the reality of cl- uh, climate change sinking in. And so, and, and, and so far, what I think is just objectively true at this point, which I don't think anyone can really deny if, if you're paying attention, is that the Republican Party is just basically total white nationalism and neo-fascism. Yeah, it's it's There's pure th- fascism. There's no yeah. way around it. And the Democratic Party either is, is, is for the most part incapable or just does not care about having yeah, a new vision. Well, it's a dying neoliberalism. It's a very, yeah. I mean, it really is a gerontocracy, but as in like, there's a lot of old people that are running things that are just like there. And they're just things that are just like calcified and aren't able to adapt and change to a new reality. And, I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily have like they don't have a specific animus against the Democratic Party in the sense that like they just want a political future. But if the Democratic Party like repeatedly shows that it's not willing to do that, then they won't have any choice. And it's not really about being Machiavellian. I think people like to sort of ascribe these like sort of you know, high political machinations to the left, especially to Marxists. But mm-hmm. Marxist politics really is not about like, oh, elaborately designed plans and all that stuff. 
and is really just like about understanding like class power and like class struggle and just not being and just not letting the bourgeoisie lie to you and knowing that knowing what their interests are and just not assuming that they're anything else it's not really that complicated um but yeah it's yeah um one thing that uh i I just want to get this off my is something that's been bugging me is that i'm getting sick of these um oh uh bernie is losing because well first of all as we said he's not really losing he still has a chance no no, it's but it's delicate counts basically tied yeah so but i've been hearing people say oh bernie's campaign is losing or people don't like him because of the evil bernie bros online i'm I'm just getting just like it's insanity i mean like there's Look, I've, I've, I mean, are there, look, okay, are there, um, toxic, mean-spirited people who happen to be on the, you know, the Bernie side or the social democratic side? Yes, but they're not the majority I, of Bernie's no, base, and they're don't mostly e- don't, not. <laughs> yeah, don't even ask that question. There's, I mean, there are shitty elements of any people, but like, That's there exa- are, yeah, exactly. There are exactly. terrible Warren supporters. There are terrible yes. Biden supporters. Honestly. Like the reason, the reason that the Bernie that the Bernie crowds sort of angst seems especially, I guess, mean is because like these are a lot of them are like people who are on their last rope, and you know, and because they're it's directed upwards. Like every single yeah. fucking little snide um, comment by some like Warren supporting or centrist liberal. That doesn't that's not seen as mean in the same way because they because they like already basically have a higher class position. So, you know, they so it doesn't it does, you know, there's less force behind it because it's because they're just like putting these people in their place and talking about how much of a loser they are. And so, you know, somehow that's just not as mean. But it's also like that whole thing was always one a way to discredit the movement and it work it works for people whose only interaction with politics is t- is through screens um it totally works but it's very much a way to discredit the movement behind bernie sanders and yeah. two it's just a fucking landmine because there's nothing you can ever like there's like i like whenever like he needs to control his but like how Right. How well, could how could you want Bernie Sanders to call up every single like there's millions of them. Like what are you talking this, about? And unfortunately, so I mean a couple things. Um one, yes, I was just going to get to that. I I've, I've seen toxic people among Warren supporters, even Kamala Harris supporters. <laughs> uh, you know, so there, there else. are there are assholes on all. There's there are assholes on all quarters of the internet. I think what happens is that like people put a larger uh, microscope over the Bernie camp, but they ignore the the other supporters. So there's also that, and we also be- began this episode with the li- white liberal condescension toward Nina Turner from Hillary Rosen. You know that doesn't get read as um, toxicity. You know t- to- toxicity. But that level of condescension is just as bad. 
you know so so it's like but it, but the thing is like okay this is coming from you know an upper middle class liberal white yeah. woman working for a major campaign so it doesn't get read as like toxic but here she is basically one interpreting a quote wrong and two doubling down on her wrong interpretation of a quote and three uh, just a level of, again paternalism that, and condescension no, and pure, to a black woman the pure entitlement i love that for i also want to i want to say i also want to say that it's always very telling if your biggest problem is that people are mean to you online like right. that's that's very telling i loved that ex- that exchange so much and we'll have to link to it because yeah that is like there and i've i've had this happen to me where I guess I've like said something that was a little too slick and then like to some white erstwhile left person. And then they are mm-hmm. like, no, I'm going to put you in your place. That is yep. white. That is like whiteness um, distilled is basically like, no, like yet, yeah, like I know it might look bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like, yes, yeah. yes. The yeah. optics may look like I'm oppressing you, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know you what it is? Stop me. Here's another term for it. It's called white fragility. I mean, because if, if you, because I was listening to a lecture by uh, Robin D'Angelo, she's the one who wrote the book on white fragility. And th- that, that example of her, you know, uh, basically like, you know, let me put you in your place. You got it wrong. Da, da, da. Yeah. That level of, again, like white smugness, white hubris and white condescension. That's an example of white fragility that Robin D'Angelo talks about. And it's just funny because like the, the liberal democratic establishment you know, has has made a big talk about intersectionality, white privilege, blah, blah, blah. But you can see in multiple instances, Mm -hmm. such as this clip, in which they reinforce the same white fragility and white hubris and white racism that they so rail against. So, yeah, yeah, so it's like, yeah, I mean, are are there annoying Bernie bros? Sure, but like, like, look, uh, like some of the toxic, like, yeah, there is toxic white liberal paternalism. I, I have to deal with them more than you do, random one exactly. person. And also, yeah, fragility is very much a part of like fascism and mm-hmm. like that kind of power structure because it's like, yeah, you have this overwhelming force and like this hegemonic power, but somehow that's not enough. So there still has to be this sense of like delicacy, like, and that like this whole thing could be broken at any moment. So you have to have your guard out all the time. It's not that like you have you've established your power and then so you can just sit back and relax right that fragility is like some it's you know it's not just enough that you have this power but it's also like but somebody might be saying something mean about me my feelings might get hurt somehow i'm still in danger and so i have to go on the attack against the people who have less power than me because they might be planning something um and yeah that's it's always very much I always thought it was so weird. It's like, if you're the master race, right, then how are you, like, so susceptible to, like, being totally undermined by these, you know, inferior populations? But that's the whole thing is that they, you, like, even though you're the master race, you still have to continuously prove it. You can't just Mm -hmm. assume you're the master race and let it happen and just live off that. You have to always go out and be like, actually, no, I'm going to, I you like you unruly people need to constantly be put in your place. Yeah, and so the definition of white fragility is basically discomfort and defensiveness on the part of a white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. And and basically, um, 
I, I definitely recommend our listeners to uh, check out Robin D'Angelo if they haven't, because like there's this like kind of, you know, kind of small group of like white anti-racist um, scholars and writers. Tim Wise is the most famous, but I often <laughs> find him the, the, the least helpful. Um, but I will say Robin yeah. D'Angelo, um, I think when it comes to challenging whiteness as a construct and particularly how white liberals um, reinforce white supremacy on a day-to-day basis, I, I, I really recommend um, checking out Robin D'Angelo's work because I think like that clip, that exchange between <laughs> Nina Turner and Hilary Rosen, is a, it's like that's an example of white fragility right right there. And and Chris Cuomo, you know, he was just like, you guys meet you. Trump is the evil one. Why are you guys fighting? And that's yeah. also white fragility as well. That's sort of like, you know, he's in the middle of this discussion. And that's sort of like just sort of just cowardice uh, when it comes to, you know, like challenging the very clear white liberal paternalism that he sees. So it was actually kind of like that exchange now that I think about it, was kind of like a one-two punch against Nina Turner because it was Hillary Rosen basically being, you know, the the, the one yeah. who was Yeah, being just the lying her ass off. Just, just, just lying, pure lies. Just to pure fucking lies coming out L- of her mouth. Lies and, then, lies and then entitlement at her lies being questioned. That's- and doubling down on the lies when challenged. And then Chris Cuomo was basically being like the, the good cop in this scenario. Just basically like being the friendly version of, of her white paternalism. But this actually yeah. kind of connects to something else I, I, I've been thinking about, um, which are the uh, very real class divides within yeah. progressive circles. Yes. And we're, and we're, how I've been seeing that with Warren support. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I like, we're not like, yeah, we're all on the same team. No, we're not. We're not on the same <laughs> team. We're, we're just forced to be around each other. But it's like like the left is one dysfunctional family and there's like people who want to leave like Democratic Party is one dysfunctional family. There's like yep. the parents have like completely driven the entire family into ruin. And there's like the sur like the surly teenage kid who's like, I wanna leave. This is all bullshit. And they're like, How could you say that? And they're like, I wanna leave. And they're like, You can't, we'll kill you if you leave. Then there's like the precocious kid, other teenager <laughs> who's like, you know, who thinks that if they just like behave correctly and ask all the right questions and suck up to the parents that like the parents will let them like take over and fix things. But that's not going to happen either. And so then everyone's just yelling at each other. And then there's like, you know, I guess like the peacemaker child who's like, why are you all fighting? And it's like, because like we don't want to be together like like we're not on the same team people have fundamentally different interests left unity is a fiction and people need to stop acting like like this is like some sort of social club like people have conflicting goals and they're forced mm-hmm. to be together like yep. for certain reason certain political necessities like at this current moment but we're not on the same team so, like, I've been noticing even amongst uh, my own social circles, I made a post about this on Facebook, and then a lot of people wound up sharing it. Sometimes I'll say stuff on Facebook, and I just mean it. I just mm-hmm. mean it just to just to say it, 
And then people are like, oh my God, can I share it? Can I share it? And then it gets shared on someone else's page. And it sparks this whole big discussion that I just didn't anticipate and I, I don't want to get into it. Uh, but, but basically, like, and I'm, I'm Peter, I'm sure, like, you've, you've probably yeah. felt similarly, like, because we both grew up, I and mean, we, we both went to Stanford, but we both came from I say blue collar roots for the most part. Uh, um, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what my roots are. Like my parents were like had doctorates, but they, we also mm. like usually didn't. I also was on like free lunch until fourth grade. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, like, like, like we definitely yeah. struggled, but we also had it. There was like, yeah, we had sort of like an institutional liberal, I guess background, but mm. you know, it, it was in a like integrated working class neighborhood going to urban public schools. So right, I don't, right. I don't know. Don't ask me about it. It's, <laughs> it's, it has no bearing on where. Well, it has some bearing on where I am now, but you know. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I make this comment. I mean, I, I say this because, like, I mean, I was, I was raised by a single mother, um, public school teacher. So, like, you know, we we weren't destitute, but it's like, you know. T- t- for anyone who knows teacher salaries, like teachers don't make that much money. And if you're a single parent, like, yeah. so, so yeah, like we were like on that, I don't know, lower middle class to slash working class cusp. And, and where I grew up was largely working class. So I still, I say it because I still keep in touch with friends of mine who I grew up with, like on Facebook and we're still in touch. And I will say about Pittsburgh, California, where I grew up, um, it, there's a, it's a very tight knit community. So if you grew up there, people tend to, you know, know each other, mm-hmm. and like there's a strong sense of community there. So I still have, you know, roots there. Um, so I have people, you know, who live who still live there. Um, and then you know, going to Stanford and then University of San Francisco for my MFA. Um, yeah, very different worlds because yeah. obviously, like those universities are very upper middle class and white um, yeah over and, upper and, middle and, class like yeah they don't call them elite for nothing i like yeah i never thought yeah. that well i never thought we were all really doing that badly but i didn't like i honestly was like probably one of the poorer people i knew at stanford um, oh same yeah which was same. kind of nuts like yeah like, it's crazy. As as simple yeah. as just like, yeah, everyone else flew home for Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh, oh, that doesn't even occur to you. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, we're just going somewhere for spring break. Oh, yeah. We're just going to go to Coachella. Um, yeah. Do you want to come? Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I would <laughs> like to go. But. Yeah. So I I've been noticed. So I noticed a very real. Uh, political and class divide just in my own mm, social media feed. Yeah, and that's what my post is about. A lot of my, you know, peers, most mostly my peers who went to Stanford, but other people I've met in like kind of, I say progressive, white liberal, um, professional spaces um, in college after after university graduate school, like those kinds of spaces, right? People I've met in those environments, a lot of them. Uh, this is before Warren dropped out, obviously, but a lot, a lot of them are diehard uh, Warren for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Um, whereas yeah, a lot of my, so. whereas a lot of my working class friends, um, 
are very much for Bernie. And there is this article by uh, Matt Iglesias. Of all people. Uh, of all people. Uh, an interesting moment of introspection by someone like Matt Iglesias uh, in Vox called Why Elizabeth Warren is Losing Even as White Professionals Love Her. I'll read these. I, uh, I thought three- the headline was Why Elizabeth Warren is Losing Even as All Your Friends Like Her. I think that's. They might have changed that. Th- they might have changed the headline. Yeah. But it's something like that. So. Um, I'm going to read three of the sentences. It says, I am um, a highly educated white person, and most of my friends and acquaintances are also highly educated white people. Elizabeth Warren is very popular with people like us. The reality is that there aren't many people like us, and there's a valuable lesson in that, not just about the Warren campaign specifically, but about some of the larger dynamics in American politics. And that's true, because like, I noticed like a lot of, you know, this is, this is not to give a specific you know judgment to people i went to school with and in those I'll professional space be- yeah i mean like because i mean i don't want to judge them too harshly mainly because you know like because some of them because they might be listening <laughs> well some of them like i think genuinely do care about issues of race and gender and and progressive issues but i i just think there are real uh, class division and class blinders that even the most educated and progressive of a person cannot see. And what's, yeah. what's interesting is that like a lot of these people are very, very good when it comes to looking at racial quote unquote microaggressions. I'm using that term in quotes. Um, they're really good at looking, understanding like the nuances of racism, even on the most like like microscopic level in day-to-day life they're very good at analyzing gender dynamics in their everyday life but what they often overlook is to the extent that class dynamics and class division actually shape their day-to-day life but the thing is is like a lot of what i've noticed a lot about of what i've noticed a lot about progressive um highly educated and when i say educated i mean like educated at very good universities because there are plenty of poor working class people who are smart and educated. They just don't, they're not at those, they're not at those institutions. So when I say educated, I'm meaning like they've graduate degrees or Ivy. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Really, really good private and public universities like UCLA, UC Berkeley, university, of San Francisco, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, those, those, those kinds of schools. Um, Those sorts of people, and this is a very much like a liberal, progressive, educated thing. And this is a very this is a weakness that uh, I that the right is very good at pointing at. Yeah. And a lot a lot of those educated progressives they um, convince themselves and carry themselves off as, oh, you know, we're super uh, enlightened and smart. Like they pride themselves on having a moral and intellectual high ground, but their view. And interaction with everyday poor people is very paternalistic. Yeah, they tend to have a very, very paternalistic view of poor people. And I've noticed this, and I'll say this like because, um, in addition to writing, I've I've teach a lot. So I'm a TA at a community college. I've I've you know been a one on one tutor for years now. So I have a lot of experience when it comes to education. And a lot of my students are for the most part, like working class, low income, largely non-white. And um, the di- the dynamic is different. Um, and I've noticed even sometimes in classrooms, 
sometimes there'll be like a like a white teacher, right? Like a white teacher, and you have a, a classroom of mostly. Is it is um, it uh, Michelle Pfeiffer? <laughs> no, I, I would I wouldn't say Michelle Pfeiffer. No, um, turns but, the but chair like, around backwards. It's like, listen, you ungrateful people, I'm gonna make you learn. <laughs> you don't end up in jail. Yeah, well, close to it. Uh, cl- uh, well, basically, like you know, their education in these kinds of programs is like there are a lot of middle class white people who go into education, and a lot of them are mm. teaching in working class, low income, black and brown areas. And a lot of times, and I'm sure if you're a teacher and you're listening to this, I'm pretty sure you can relate relate with this. There'll be times when, like, you know, a teacher is probably talking about intersectionality, microaggressions, teaching kids about social justice, in blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm talking, in my experience, this is community uh, college. Uh, but, okay. but I think, I'm pretty sure the same dynamic occurs within high school. But, but what I'm mainly talking about is just the basically the interaction between, like, a white professional middle class person in a room with largely working class and low income black and Latino students, right? And, yeah. and one thing I've noticed is that sometimes the students will be like, What the fuck do they know about my struggle? Like, they don't know where I'm coming from. They're talking all this jargon and stuff, but they don't know where I'm coming from. So sometimes they kind of like tune out a little bit. And sometimes the paternalism can get worse because sometimes some white teachers will say stuff that's like, um, very very kind of uh dismissive and condescending and the students feel it and they're like i don't want to be around this teacher so i say that because um you know a lot of those teachers vote democrat but they're not populist democrat right like they're democrat they're liberal but they're not going to go so far as to challenge an economic status quo that gives them some benefits because these people aren't rich but they have like again, they're professional managerial class. They're like lawyers, yeah. doctors, professors, um, HR people, uh, nonprofits, especially nonprofits. Yeah. These are people who are educated. They're not rich, but they have some degree of control and influence in their lives and over the lives of other people. So, Michael Albert um, has a yeah. re- explains this really well. But he was saying that like, um. You know, when he said he he, uh, he often teaches at uh, prisons and working class colleges, and what he was saying that, like, you know, when you mention doctors, lawyers, and engineers, working class people get animated because they see them every day and they hate them because those are the people who looked, they look down upon them, they treat them like shit. So th- to, to me, like, there's a real dynamic there that's going on that yeah. I think. The, the left and progressive side has to think about because you know yeah. if people who are quote unquote progressive care about economic justice then to what extent are you reinforcing those dynamics in your day to day life because if you're good at understanding how racism manifests in your day to day life if you're good at understanding how gender and uh, sexism and homophobia and transphobia manifests in your day to day life then you should also understand how classism also shapes wow. your, uh, your everyday life. Well, but that's the, something a lot of educated progressives don't think about. Yeah. Well, the P the PMC the the professional managerial class is going through a lot right now. One of the things is that they basically, like as you pointed out, you know, they basically were the the most visible part of the left, and 
you know, it was easy for conservatives to make fun of them. I always remember, like, back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was basically just like any lefty, anyone who was espousing any left idea was a hypocrite, you know, and was like not saying something from their own experience. Now that there's an actual or at least the buddings of like a working class left movement, these people who basically like thought of themselves as carrying the flame of the oppressed now mm-hmm. have to deal with the oppressed actually talking and bingo and it makes them a, and now they're a little confused and you know instead of being able to adapt they go with the person who you know they reckon and yeah a lot of a lot of you know politics in the you know visual medium era is like yeah who can who do you see yourself in and these people see themselves in elizabeth warren and you know, I guess in, on some base, like, egoism or something, they think that, like, and they're spoiled by Obama, who's very much, like, the intellectual in chief. Like, that's how the country should be run by the smartest possible people. And yeah. it always blows my mind that people think Elizabeth Warren, like, is just smarter than Bernie Sanders. And she just understands things, understands things that Bernie Sanders doesn't. Like, I've never understood what these people think Bernie Sanders doesn't understand. He's just playing a different game. And yeah, they think that like, that's some sort of a mark on him that like, he basically was just like, you know, basically like he got in, he's tried to associate himself with Washington and the DC culture as little as possible and didn't care about playing the game because he didn't need to. Um, That's, and it's just it's so funny, I guess, where they're when people talk about how I mean, I'm not trying to get too whatever. It's so funny that like they talk about how smart she is when she's made so many questionable decisions. And oh, you're yeah. just like I I just like that's the thing that makes me like really upset is just that people assume that like yeah, I guess having degrees and is makes you smart. And like talking a certain way makes you smart, and I th- it's kind of funny because like, you know, despite having I guess like having gone to a prestigious college, like I always tried to explain things, maybe not always successfully, like in my writing, in a more basic level that like yeah regular people could kind of understand, and I found that honestly, like the more I did that, especially like the further left I went. When I would talk to basically like PMC people, I I would start to get that they like thought I wasn't as smart as them. And I guess I'm right. someone who admittedly I have an ego problem where like I really, really don't like if I think somebody thinks I'm stupid. Like I don't take that well. Yeah. And yeah. and yeah, so then I then I like almost like have to start using big words again so they would understand like that it's 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 a whole trip it's a whole head trip honestly i remember i remember we were reading that uh nation article saying that uh, elizabeth warren is the most intersectional candidate i remember you were saying that like they used the word aperture in that article <laughs> and you're saying like, no one because that's true and that's that's a really good example opening of, guys yeah i mean when i think of aperture i think of um you know the the, the film camera like the opening of an aperture yeah. on a camera on a lens. Yeah. But but it's like, you know, that's a really good example because um uh Warren like I, I think people 
particularly on that PMC liberal side, they underestimate the degree to which, one, being genuine, and two, being able to talk to and relate to people on their level, how important that is. And I think with Bernie Sanders, people forget, like, Bernie Sanders is educated. He went to an Ivy League school. I believe it was. Where did he go again? U Chicago. Yeah, he went to University of Chicago. So he has, his education pedigree is not that, you know, different than Warren's, but what Bernie Sanders. It's actually higher. Um, yeah, technically, because Warren, the fun, the funniest thing about Warren is that she like never went to an Ivy League school. She just yeah, she, she just hustled her way into the Ivy Ivy League liberalism, which I guess you kind of I almost admire it. Like her her story is is very strange, honestly. Yeah. So so she went to. Yeah. Um, University of Houston for undergraduate and then Rutgers Law School for law school, whereas Bernie Sanders went to University of Chicago and I don't he didn't he didn't do graduate studies. No. At least I don't think. No, he didn't do graduate studies. He went he just went to U- University of Chicago. Then to an Israeli um, kibbutz and then to ten years of eating shit in local elections in Vermont. Yeah, so you know, even though Bernie Sanders does not have a graduate degree in the way that Warren does because Warren has a law degree. Um, at least when it comes to education pedigree, like they're not that far from each other. So, but the difference with Sanders, and I think, um, and by the way, like um, I sometimes I'll, I'll you know talk politics with my students from time to time, and um, the mood I've I've gotten with students is um, most of them are for Bernie Sanders. Or they've um, checked out of the system basically because they feel like the, the system doesn't work for them. Like there's a kind of there's a kind of apathy that I think kind of generates when like you know you don't really see your life improving or the life of the your community improving. And so I think people yeah. there's a tendency to kind of tune out. Oh. So it's either also politics apathy. is like hard to understand. I mean, it, it is, is complicated. yeah, yeah, and it's I think that's deliberate. Like it's it's made deliberately complex in a way that it doesn't need to be complex, but it's complex because like you know it it makes the those PMC Good people barrier. who design that system it's a barrier and it makes the people at the top feel like they're smart. You know, it, it kind of reinforces their feeling of superior superiority. If they can make something super complicated to them, it's like okay, because we're the only ones who can decipher this. And not these, you know, fucking dumb rubes. Then, uh, yeah, we're the smart ones, and we deserve to be at the top because we're the yeah. only ones who understand this really obscure language. It's kind. Um, it's kind of like how the New York Times has really, you know, gotten tough on. Has really like gotten tough on their paywall, so you can't really get around it. And I was thinking, like, man, they're supposed to be like disseminating news to the masses, but like it's all behind a paywall. And then it's like, oh. Maybe that's that's like kind of the point is that like actually not everyone's supposed to be able to read it. Only the people that can afford a New York Times subscription are able to read it, you know, and also people who I mean, and also enough like, to buy a New York Times subscription or Washington Post subscription can read, well, can and read also, this great journalism. And also, like, I mean, the reality of journalism is that, like, you know, uh, the pay sucks. So it's like. You know, they, they have these paywalls to, um, you know, basically fund journalism. But, you know, there's still a large, a lot of journalism is done by stringers and freelancers. Yeah. So, 
I'd like to know where that money that the New York Times is making is going because I don't like I, mm-hmm. I hope it's going. I hope if, if people are going to pay for the New York Times, I hope it goes to the journalists writing the stories because a lot of times I've seen you know uh, oftentimes the money does not go to. It, the you can get pretty writers. well. I think it's fifteen thousand yeah. for a New York Times magazine cover story. Someone told me that. Oh whoa! Oh oof! Yeah. I'd like that money. <laughs> oh man! I, yeah. Ooh, that that's nice. Um, but Wait, yeah, like right wing media is has no paywall. You can watch. You can yeah. read all the Daily Caller articles you want. Because um, they have wealthy donors. That's why. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they have wealthy. It's admittedly it's admittedly a problem the left has. It will never have as much money, but it is also like. Yeah, there, there's the PMC is, uh, you know, you talk about being genuine, but like you, you kind of don't want these people to be genuine because if they were genuine, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't necessarily, their genuine opinions may not be as progressive as they want them to be. Right, uh, right. That's a good, no, I, I said genuine, I, I forgot why I said genuine, but I think yeah. what I was saying was, uh contrasting it with sanders yeah sanders is he's he he seems like a. I think with sanders part of his appeal is um i think people can understand when they listen to him that um he knows what people are going through and he has a way to fix it versus well he elizabeth yeah he communicates things very simply and people who are very Mm -hmm. smart don't like that because they're bored exactly and so they want and, someone to break. They want someone to get all into the weeds and the policy mm-hmm. weeds and get all wonky on it. And they they love that shit. But most people. But that's not what political messaging is about. No, it's not. So yeah, Bernie talks in a way that like, you know, and I don't. It's it's not really dumbing down. It's more a translation. He's able to speak in a way that everybody could understand and comprehend even especially yeah. the regular person who doesn't pay attention to politics. He's able to speak directly to people. And also like, you know, he's been consistent politically his whole life. So there is that sense of when I say being genuine, it's like being consistent. Yeah. Like, okay. This guy says what he means versus someone who, you know, flip flops and change based on where the wind blows. I think, you know, when people see us it, like, wait a minute, okay, this person's not like, they're not, they're kind of full of shit. Like they're not, they're not being real. Because I think, like, you know, the thing with, with, if you look at the right, you know, the, the conservative, the far right, like they, someone like they, Trump, they have, they're genuine. They're very, like, what you see is what you get. Yeah. We, what you see is what you get with them. There's, there's poor people. Yeah. Um, we genuinely want America to run everything. And yeah, we genuinely uh, want women to stop asking so many questions it's uh yeah and 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 people and they and they're very consistent and yeah they have very good message discipline yeah and you know on the left that makes it easier to fight the right because you know who you're dealing with the enemy's right in front of you so it's, it's, it's a lot easier to confront them um versus someone who you know, pretends like they're your friend on the outside, but then stabs you on the back, you know, when you're not looking. That's a lot harder to deal with because it's harder to predict their mood. It's harder to predict like, okay, is this person really on my side or are they an enemy Uh, versus an enemy that's like right clearly in front of you. Um, And 
you know, and I think that like that was part of Trump's appeal with the the Republican base because he didn't sugarcoat the racist rhetoric. He just said it out in the open, which is what is yeah. which is what the Republican base wanted. Right. Yeah, and so that's how he won. And people, so people respect someone who just says shit. It's like all the politically yeah. incorrect comedians. It's like people have to deal with all this like double talk. I mean, working people have to deal with like the double talk and the you know finessed language of their bosses you know all the time and so on some level they resident they'll connect with you know someone who just comes out and says shit and i think that like a lot of times when people are assessing like why because like look like in the kitchen at work like it's uh i mean it's very it's very politically incorrect um environment Mm -hmm. and you know I mean, I try to like say stuff if it if I feel like something's like really out of line, but it's like, you know, whatever, you know, it's, that's just that's the reality of a lot of regular workplaces, and yep. that can go in not great directions, but it's the reality of it. Um, and people connect with someone who just like says, just comes out and says the shit that everyone else is trying to not talk about, and I think that is like. The left, for some reason, you know, historically, though, I think that there I think that, you know, there's like a growing left media and stuff and a different kind of messaging that is being better at just like, yeah, coming out and saying everything. But, you know, even Uh, yeah, even though, like, if the person on the right who's just coming out and saying it is lying and 95 percent of the time they are, they're convincing enough or they're touching on something that sounds like it should be true that people and, and Thomas Sankara, who our show is named after nice segue. He, he was actually, yeah, he was, uh, he was one of those leaders. I mean, that was part of his appeal actually is because he spoke directly to the people in a way that was yeah. very, very direct. And he was, he was often very funny and witty. Yeah. You should watch his old of, speeches. He, he was a great orator. Yeah. Um, similar, I think I would also, I would also argue Malcolm X is very similar in terms yeah. of his oratory. I mean, the, the dude was incredibly intelligent, but he was incredibly, he was also incredibly witty, um, in a way that everybody, especially mm-hmm. particularly cause his audience was largely black urban working class. That was yeah. largely his audience, which was, you know, the audience of Harlem and the base of the nation of Islam at the time. So I think, like, you know, particularly guys like Thomas Sankara and Malcolm X, um, you know, I think they were very good uh, political orators. And they didn't talk like, you know, uh, wait, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up. I'll, I'll go back to what Michael Albert was saying, because there's something he said that, like, just just really sort of hit the nail on the head. He asked uh, when it when it comes to leftist spaces, he asked um uh, why do our movements uh, resemble a law school and not a pub? I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he was basically yeah. saying like left-wing spaces feel more like a Harvard law school lecture rather, rather than a pub. And I think if, if to, to historically, yeah. it's, or at least in the past 30 years, it's been only in law school and not in pubs, you know? Exactly. And I remember this is, uh, I remember uh, when I was, I think it's like my last semester, last quarter of my senior year at Stanford. And 
uh, I was taking a Middle East um, history class, and I remember it was, I think I was doing some paper, some research on um, revolutions in uh, the Middle East, the Arab world, particularly mm. uh, Egypt. And one thing yeah. that just stuck with me is a lot of the political socialization that occurred was in coffee houses. Yeah, so that's where people yeah, talk. They gathered to get exactly. They socialized. They gathered gathered together. They had intense political conversations, and that formed a a social base that sparked political movements. And compare that to the U.S. Like a lot of leftist spaces are not in. You know, like there are no real salons or coffee that's, shops. Uh, like that that's what people... Twitter is, unfortunately. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. All we've got. Uh, right. Right. Because I mean, you know, the the spaces in which people congregate, like they hardly exist anymore. Like the United States is a very, very atomized uh, country. So if people want to complain about politics. Twitter and social media wow. is usually yeah the place to yeah, go. Yeah, if you think about like suburban. You know, it's like everything is almost perfectly set up for reactionary politics, like the suburban life, Mm -hmm. like you get in your you wake up in your box, you get in a box and you drive through a bunch of shitty traffic that makes you mad. And then you listen to the Rush Limbaugh, who's also mad and he's mad while you're mad. And so then you just go into work mad at your shitty Mm -hmm. job in your cubicle and a giant box. Then. You come home and you go and you watch TV, you know, and your sports team is losing and you get mad about that. And then you go and then you drink yourself to sleep and you wake up and you do it all over again. And yeah, you don't really talk to other people. I mean, yeah, it's like the third space is what they call it in like urban design is. Yeah, it's like not basically not home or work is like another place to go and. Yeah, I'm there. I mean, this none of this is an accident, right? Like that there aren't public squares to gather, you know, and stage mass demonstrations, particularly in places like Phoenix, um, you know, where you have like you have to drive everywhere, right? It's hard, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and um, I mean this 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 connects back to why I mentioned the. Um class device because i think i think um you know one's um social circles uh that can shape how people view politics and that's not to say like every professional class person is a war supporter i mean because i've met plenty of people who are bernie Bernie sanders supporters right so it's you know it's not all black and white right exactly right Uh, but i think like you know it's it's no surprise um, that, you know, if someone is a part of the professional managerial class and um, is, is in those social circles a lot and your life revolves around that professional managerial class, upper middle class life, it makes sense how that could influence someone's politics and their political behavior. And, and um, that was something I, I had been um, thinking about. And I think that's something that you know, especially as this so-called progressive coalition that, you know, and, and I, I agree with you, Peter, like, like the idea of like, there, there really is no progressive unity. I, I just think it's wow. just, uh, people can, people been. think there is, it's never has been, people think there is, and they like to believe there is, but I think, um, 
In fighting, this is not the real. In fighting is a proud left tradition. It's like the most left. It's one of the. <laughs> it's one of our best things. It's one of our favorite things to do is argue amongst each other because the left is about ideas and. You know, people will always have different ideas about what to do. So we're always going to argue with each other. The right doesn't have that problem because they don't need ideas. They have interests. They just have interests that they're defending. And, you know, you get the people necessary whose interest is concerned and you get them all in a room and you explain this is these are the people that are threatening your interest is what you need to do. And they basically line up and do it. And because they don't need to move society forward. So sometimes when people complain about like left infighting, it's like, I don't really know. Well, I do know um, it's called uh, it's called Marxism Leninism. If you want to get rid of left infighting, but <laughs> outside of that, um, yeah, it's, a, it's never going to be a thing that like, like it's just going to be part of the left that like we are going to argue with each other. But that's not the same thing, but it's important to differentiate between like people like, yeah, we're going to argue with each other versus like people, you know, making the sort of shameful spectacle of the fact that there are competing class interests like locked in the same movement together and there isn't a way to resolve it. And that's the thing that like we like we need to understand is not a thing that gets just easily resolved by like you know people agreeing to disagree like no people have fundamentally different agendas um right exactly and also like um i think also different allegiances too yeah you know because i think because because the pmc people their allegiance fundamentally a lot of them is to their pmc class status so you know they do have some interests i mean they they have an allegiance to that Wow, class group. I mean, they're not their allegiance isn't really to poor people. Well, they're yeah, you know what I mean. Not as much. They're not owners because it's it's a precarious position in the sense that they understand that with the wrong moves they could end up basically back in the proletariat slash working class, and they don't want to exactly. do that. They worked hard to get where they are. Um, all right, we're yeah. at one. We're an hour fifteen. Uh, Ooh, this is yeah. This is a good one. Yeah, we didn't e- we didn't even get to the black vote. Um, yeah, <laughs> we uh, we'll get to that later. Yeah, maybe we'll do that yeah. in the bonus episode. Um, wink, wink. Uh, yeah, that's why you guys should subscribe, subscribe, yeah. subscribe, subscribe. And Peter, I bl- we're on Spotify, I believe. Right? Yeah, I just true? got us on Spotify and Stitcher. <laughs> So nice. Uh, and I can't do iTunes because I don't have Apple products, but okay. we should be on uh, iTunes I'll... pretty shortly. So it should be much easier to find us um, on your like favorite podcast app or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, tell tell your friends about us. Um, you know, we we like to think of ourselves as having um some of the best takes on politics, uh, global and yes. international politics, black politics. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't make the rules. I just, I just, I just tell the truth about yeah. them. And I, you know, that's, that's yeah. what it is. We, we have some of the best takes. So yeah. again, I don't make those rules. Yeah. This is what, it is what it is. We, we, our only fealty is to the truth. And the truth <laughs> is 
we've got the, the best stakes. So, yeah, exactly. And that's why you should uh, subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash real Sankara hours. And also follow us on Twitter at Sankara hours. Um, if you, if, if you follow us on Twitter and, and Patreon, um, you can get, that's a good way to uh, keep in touch uh, and keep up to date with what we're doing in our episodes. Um, and yeah, if you're a subscriber, if you pay five, $5 a month, you get our bonus episodes, our real Sankara hours episodes. Um, so this episode is a free one. It's open to the public. It's free. Anyone can view it. But if you want, if you like this episode and other episodes we've done, if you need two, you want more, you need two hot doses of content a week. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We we we've already gotten like seven pa- patrons in like the past two weeks, which I, I mean, I'm honestly humbled that anyone's giving us money. Um, Same here. I, 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 Very I, I do take it seriously, and I really hope. Yeah. And I really want to give you guys good stuff. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I echo that, and you know we we are not on you know the Chapo Trap House level of podcast um, <laughs> uh, fame and money, um, or any other famous uh, left podcast that make a ton of money. But um, you know it. Uh, man, it'd be nice to have that kind of money. <laughs> it's like fuck. It would, it would, would be it nice. Would, like, yeah, I mean, I really would like. I I could. I I would like this to be like my main job, because yeah. there's a lot of you know. I have a whole box of books I bought at Philadelphia's oldest. They he said it was the oldest black-owned bookstore on the East Coast, and I haven't had a chance mm. to get into them, and I want to get into them. Um, there's yeah, there's a you know, there's a lot we could do. So yeah. We're, yeah, we we are just getting started. So, like, you know, when I was comparing us to other podcasts, I was, you know, that's it wasn't just, you know, comparing who has more money, but it's also like, uh, I think we have a lot to offer and we're just getting started. So, um, you know, if you guys like this episode and any other episodes we've done and want to, and want to, you know, uh, want more content uh, and more episodes, um, you know why listen to half of the episodes that are available when you can listen to all of the episodes that are available. So if you want to listen to all of the episodes that are available, um, you sit, you can subscribe for five dollars a month. And you get bonus episodes and uh, um, yeah, like Peter, I'm I'm actually you know this is something I I had been thinking about for years of starting some sort mm-hmm. of black radical magazine or publication for a long time and then when peter suggested the podcast idea i was like oh that's yeah that's a great fucking idea why didn't i think of that i mean yeah i didn't i didn't even think of really getting into the podcasting thing until peter you were the one who kind of hit me up and was like i honestly was just like man we're talking about the same shit forever yes it's true i'll just fucking record it yeah yeah and it's it's uh yeah, it is humbling to see that people are willing to give us money um, and, and donate um, to support this kind of work. So, yeah, we are just getting started, and if you subscribe, that will 
only support the work that uh, we want to put into this podcast because there are so many things we'd like to talk about. And as Peter said, like we were going to talk about the black vote, but didn't get yeah. to it because it's we're at, um, our yeah. initial plan was to talk about Tupac Shakur, but we had we were too yeah. mad about the, about the election. We're we're not going to talk that much about the election in the future, but it's yeah, it's easy right now. So. Yeah, yeah, because there's so much, I mean, and there's so much that's happened, I think, within the past two weeks with this election. I mean, you know, we went from, oh, fuck, like half a dozen candidates. I mean, there's Biden, Sanders, Bridges, Klobuchar, uh, like seven candidates. Now it's to two candidates. So we had a lot to cover, um, you know, because there's a lot that happened within those two weeks. And uh, I mean, we're not going to ignore the election, but... There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world that need to be that needs to be talked about, um, and that we Peter and I would also like to talk about because sometimes paying attention to this to the election, especially this election, uh, as you can tell, uh, it's very fucking tiring. There's a lot of bullshit in it, and um, there are times I'm just like I don't even want to think about the election because it's wow. just like. It's just it. It's only gonna get dumber and dumber and dumber, and stupider. Unless Bernie Sanders is the nominee, and then it'll actually be interesting. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Uh, but um, yeah, it'll only get stupider. But we will be with you to help you through how stupid this election is and how um, tumultuous and troublesome the world is going. Uh, we're the podcast that you can listen to, um, on your commute, um, at your, uh, at the gym, uh, on your, when you're walking at, or walking your dog at your job or do whatever away with it at your job. If you can listen to us at your job, you should do it. Um, just, you know, you, you, cause you were working, you know, like everyone at a, as a nine to fiver um or why the fuck not listen to you know black radical political stuff while you're working it'll make it that much bearable uh anyway um i have nothing else to say uh do you peter or uh not really i gotta go to work tomorrow it's gonna suck um it's friday's my monday monday's my friday it's it's very strange whoa yeah Damn that! Wow, that that is really strange. That's that. Well, that's that's the service sector for you. Um, it is that when you guys get like the most uh, like people coming in, so you need more people to oh, serve. Oh, yeah. To be serving her. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's also just the way the schedule works out. Um, mm. But yeah, like yeah, the weekend's much busier on Sunday. On like Monday especially during the winter, because Maine is, like, very seasonal. I, like, may mm. do nothing all day. I mean, that's part of... That's one of the underrated things about, um, you know, modern service pro- proletarian life is, like, it isn't... There's, you know, very intense periods, and then there's, like, really dull periods. And those can those can be equally taxing in different ways. Mm. So, okay, got it. Well, anyway, that that uh, that ends this episode. Um, 
just uh, keep stay following us. Follow us again on on Twitter at Sankara Hours and um, Patreon patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. Um, again, if you like this episode and other episodes we've done, subscribe. Um, and yeah, that's it. Peace out. See ya.